I believe the uh, bulletin says we're going to go through verse uh, 26, but we're actually going to stop in verse 23. So Genesis 25, verses 1 through 23. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan followed Sheba and Dedan, father Deba, Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashuram, Letushim, and Lumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham all, gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. And Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years. And he was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre. The field that Abraham purchased for the Hittites, there Abraham was buried with, his wife, with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Be'er Lahai Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael. Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in order of their birth, Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Abdil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Syria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. These are the generations of Isaac. Abraham's son, Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. May God bless the reading of his word. The Bible throughout teaches consistently the importance of learning, embracing, and obeying the truth. The Bible also teaches that everyone who believes the gospel will be saved. The church is called the pillar and buttress of truth. 
Preachers are called to preach the truth, whether people want to hear it or not. 2 Timothy 4 says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You see, as church members, you are called to fight for the truth, to stand on the truth, to resist the urge to let go of the truth. You are not to embrace the ideas of the world. You're supposed to stand strong. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Now I would remind you, brothers of the gospel, I preached to you in which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word preached to you. We, as parents, are also called to devote ourselves to teaching and modeling the truth to our children. Children, you are called to honor your parents by embracing the truth that they have taught to you. And so from all of these things, it would be easy to conclude that salvation is nothing more than a simple equation of giving and receiving truth. More truth, more salvation. Right? The more faithful you are, the more people are saved. It'd be easy to make that conclusion. But if you did, you would be wrong. And it would be the same thing as trusting in yourself to bring about salvation. God must work by his Holy Spirit in the heart of an individual if they are going to be saved. But his work is sovereign and free. Now, he does make promises that if you trust in Christ, you will be saved. So it's not like if you're trusting in Christ, he's not going to save you. That's not the issue. But no man would ever truly trust in Jesus Christ unless there was some sort of supernatural work in his heart to produce a faith deep in his soul. And this supernatural work is only performed in those whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world. That's the mystery of eternal election. And it is not, I repeat, it is not an easy pill to swallow. The idea that God chooses to redeem one person and then chooses to not redeem another is both beautiful and disturbing. From our human perspective, the only way that any of us would know that someone has been chosen by God is when we see the evidence of faith and repentance in their heart. You only think about election looking back upon it. You don't prophetically try to figure out who is elect and who is not elect. God chose Abraham. 
How do we know God chose Abraham? Well, because God called Abraham and Abraham responded in faith. That's how we know he chose him. If he had not done those things, we would not know that he had chosen Abraham. You will run into trouble if you start trying to prophetically figure out who's elect and not elect. As far as I know, God doesn't do this in history, except for one time. And that is with Rebecca. And that is the story we're looking at today. You see, without this story of Rebecca, I do not believe we would ever truly know what election is. This is a necessary exception, and it makes accepting election all the more troubling. We have come to the close of Abraham's life. We know that God chose Abraham from a far-off land. Of out of all the people living on the earth at that time, God chooses Abraham. God binds himself to Abraham, promises to bless Abraham. Abraham believes those promises and so becomes the heir of salvation. This is all well and good. But then God includes in his promise to Abraham the promise of children. And the implication is that Abraham will enjoy the blessing with his children. That's the implication. And this is where it becomes most difficult. You see, one of the deepest joys of life is having children. God has designed us this way from the beginning. When a parent holds their child for the first time, they feel something of the beauty of God. The bonds of affection between parents and their children really mimics God's love for his beloved son. God even encourages and increases these bonds of affection by declaring that our children are heirs of the covenant. You see, Isaac will not become a heir of the covenant after he believes. He is an heir of the covenant from the start. Every child of the covenant is brought up knowing that he or she belongs to God. This is why it is so incredibly difficult that God could ever choose to not save a child of the covenant. Now, just to be clear again, stressing the difference between your situation and Rebecca's, God does not want a parent to ever give up on the salvation of their children until the child dies. Period. We know that God is powerful even to save the most rebellious child who has the most hardened heart, and the parents are called to plead before God that he would do that until the end. Every parent except Rebecca. 
God tells Rebekah, before the twins are even born, that one of them will not be eternally redeemed. Place yourself in her shoes. Man, I know that'll be a little bit more difficult. What would it be like to have two children growing up in your womb and hear from God a definite pronouncement that he would not choose one of them for salvation, but only choose the other? I don't know. I think if I were Rebecca, I would be bursting with anger. Why even give me a child if you're not going to save him? There are many beautiful, glorious aspects of election that we must love and endear, but this is the hard underbelly of that glorious doctrine. Okay, the first 18 verses. We're talking about fast going through 18 verses. We're going to go through them fast. You see, what we have in the first 18 verses of Genesis 25 are a listing of all of Abraham's non-elect children. All of these children are in contrast with Abraham's one elect child, Isaac. Now for you and I as modern readers, you're probably going, wait a minute, Abraham had a second wife? Right? We're not even understanding. Why is he even bringing Keturah up in the midst of this story? It's most likely that Keturah was a concubine of Abraham even before Sarah dies and then was raised to a status of full wife after her death. After her death. And I know that that raises all kinds of questions. I'll just, the only thing I'll tell you is that the Bible is not for polygamy. It's not for that. Okay? So, but, but just know that that's not the issue of this story. The, issue, the reason why Keturah is brought up is they want to give you a complete list of every son that has come from the loins of Abraham. That's the point. It's the whole reason to bring in Ishmael, saying that there will be 12 princes from Ishmael. It does fulfill a prophecy in Genesis 17, where God actually promises to uh, his, his mother Hagar, that, that he has blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He should be the father of 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. So it's definitely a prophecy, a fulfillment of that verse. And it's also a fulfillment of Genesis 16, 12, where in there he has said that uh, Ishmael is said to be a donkey of a man who will always be opposed to the rest of his kin. And that's, how, that's said here in this passage, that he settled over against all his kinsmen. So there's, those are, it's bringing up the faithfulness of God to those promises. But the major point is that you've got all these other kids, and then you've got Isaac. And Isaac receives it all. Abraham sends away the rest of them. He gives them enough to live on. But all of his blessing goes to, Ishmael, I mean, to Isaac. And when he dies, it says... God blessed Isaac. So the blessing that was, that was Abraham's is now upon Isaac. You, that's the whole point of this. Now, <clears throat> brings us up to verse 19. Well, let me just step back before I go into 19. If you happen to be 
a child, a grandchild, a great-grandchild, a great-great-grandchild of Isaac, and you read this first part, this contrast between all these other sons and Isaac, you'd be saying, I feel pretty good about myself. I am a descendant of the blessed man Isaac. You would be boastful. You'd feel how special you were. But here we go, right after God makes this statement about all the other sons and then Isaac, he brings us the story of Rebekah. Right after that. You know what God's trying to do? He's trying to drive a nail into the heart of anyone who would think that they should be boastful because of their human ancestry. And God does something that is hard. Even within the womb of one woman, he makes a division. That's what the text says. So I'll read there, starting in verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son, Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 when he took Rebekah to be his wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Rebekah's barrenness is not accidental. God has a purpose for her barrenness. Isaac's mother was barren for many years. Isaac was the product of God's supernatural working in her womb. So what does Isaac do when he's in the same situation? He pleads with God, will you open my wife's womb? Will you do a supernatural work in her like you did in for me when I was born? And the answer is clear. The Lord answered her prayer. Both kids are the product of this one prayer. There was supernatural grace that was given for Rebecca's conception. We can see a repetition of God's mercy similar to Sarah's. Should we not then expect that this child would be redeemed? I would. All should be well. And if having a physical child was all there was to the, to the promise of offspring, all would be well. But producing physical children is not all there is to God's promise of offspring. Having godly children who grow up to love and trust and obey God with their whole being is the fulfillment of what it means to be a son or daughter of Abraham. And we have to learn the lesson, we have to learn the lesson that truly godly offspring are only produced by God's sovereign election. We have to learn that lesson. During her pregnancy, Rebecca starts feeling movement. Normally that would be a good sign, right? Hey, the baby's moving, healthy, we're excited. Instead, she begins to feel a wrestling match in her tummy. This implies animosity. 
There is struggle. There is one fighting against the other that is going on inside of her womb. Now, Rebecca thought barren this was hard. She's like, this is not what I expected. She's wondering if this might be something, there's something wrong, something terrible happening. And so she takes her confusion to the Lord, what every good parent would do. And God responds to her. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now see, the idea, if all he said was that two nations were in your womb, that wouldn't have been a bad thing. Who cares if those two nations are in unity with one another? There are 12 tribes of Israel, and they're in one nation, no problem there. But what God says is that these two peoples will be divided. They will struggle against one another. They will be at odds with one another. And I stress two of them within one womb. They are going in entirely different directions. The final result of these two, this struggle, this division, will be that the two will be, the, the stronger one will become a servant of the weaker, and that is not a willing servitude. That is one where there is a forced servitude. So that's constant animosity. And again, and this is, this is, I, I've believed election for a long time, but as I studied this passage, I just thought to myself, what would I be thinking if I were Rebecca? I've been chosen to be the bride of the promised son of Abraham. I am personally given up my family to come and embrace all the promises of God. God has blessed me with children, and children are a blessing. And it's certainly these children inside of me are the response of prayers being answered by the Lord. And yet, one will not be an eternal son. Of Abraham. And then God, you know, I thought my children belonged to you. Both of them are members of the covenant. Both of them will receive the, receive the covenant sign. Why do you even give me children if it's only to tear one of them away from me? Why do it through Children at all. You know, God could, I mean, he really could, only let anybody into the covenant through personal choice. Rebecca came in through personal choice. Why even give this in your own womb, one that's going to embrace the covenant, one that's not? Why do that? Maybe, maybe this prophecy of God is vague enough that Rebecca doesn't fully get it worked out, but I don't think so. You see, the lesson in chapter 25 is disturbing, and I think it's because it's disturbing that we try to soften the truth. Oh, it's not talking about eternal destinies of men. 
It's just an earthly struggle between Jacob and Esau, and, and the younger is going to win out in their earthly struggle. That's all it's talking about. It's not a statement about eternal destinies. Or maybe, oh, you know, it's not really about eternal destinies. It's only about that it's through Jacob that Jesus will come. And to be fair, God does sovereignly choose even people of, the, of what looks like the non-elect for himself later on. I get that. That's why the Gentiles are brought in. <laughs> Paul, and I would ask you to turn to Romans 9 now. Paul picks up this story in Romans 9. In the first five verses of Romans 9, I'm not going to walk through the whole passage detail, but just enough pulling out things so you can get the gist of his argumentation. In Romans 9, first few verses, he is full of great sorrow and unceasing anguish. Why does he feel that way? He feels that way because some of his own brothers in the covenant that he grew up with, that he loves, have departed the faith. They have not believed in Jesus Christ. They have rejected Christ. And it just fills him with pain that this is going on. Talks about their belonging to the covenants and all the promises, all these kind of things. And he is wrestling, how could God, how could he Give my, my fellow brothers all of these blessings and not save them. Verse 6, he comes to this, this conclusion. It cannot be that God tried to save them but was unable to. It can't be that. It's not as if God's word has failed. He can't, God can't fail. Can you imagine a world in which God tries to save people but is unable to do so? Paul says, no way, no way. And then he argues in verses 10 through 16. First he starts out with the choosing of Abraham and, and the difference between Isaac and Ishmael. But I want us to focus on Rebekah. Verse 10. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, you, know, you couldn't say, well, there's a different father. Couldn't do that. One father, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of his call. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. God's purpose in election. You see, he wants his people to embrace his sovereign election over salvation. Otherwise, he would not have revealed it. You know, he could just sovereignly choose people and never tell you. He wants his people to accept this doctrine.
Paul recognizes that behind election, behind the choice of God, stands the eternal love of God. You see, it's God's love that moves him to choose. And you see in, in, in Romans 9, he goes from the choice with Rebecca, Rebecca down to Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. But those, those two statements in the Old Testament are separated by a lot of years. Because he, it's only in Malachi that he says, I have loved you, Israel, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not, and then God responds, is not Esau Jacob's brother? declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. So here's the deal. Jacob and his descendants were every bit as wicked as Esau and his descendants. And the question is in Malachi, why have you not treated us like you treated Esau. And God says, well, I I loved you. So think about your own life. Think about how many times as a believer you have fallen short of God's expectation of you. How often could it have been said to you if you, hey, I think I'm done with so-and-so. Sorry, bye. If he would have done this to me, he had plenty of chances to do this in my life. Since becoming a Christian. God tells Malachi that the reason that he has not done away with his people is because he has placed his eternal love upon them. And that eternal love goes all the way back to his choice of election. And I don't mean that God hates people like he just is mean and nasty and that's not his point. But it's the idea that he is placing affection on one person that is stronger and greater and more profound than he has on another person. There's a distinguishment in the love of God. And that is just absolutely true. God does not love all people equally. If you are here today believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, he has given you a love that he has not given those who are lost. Now, in the book of Malachi, the lesson is to all of the nation of Israel. Well, Paul takes it not to all of the nation of Israel, because Paul's looking around and he's saying that most of the nation of Israel is now rejecting Christ, and he takes that very same uh, lesson and he says, within the covenant community, within the visible church, God has to choose who are truly his. And we know that we're on the right side of the understanding of this because in verse 14, Paul anticipates the question, hey, that's not fair. That's not just. Doesn't sound just. And then Paul says, you know what? Let me give you another example. You don't like the, you don't like the uh, Jacob and Esau illustration? Let me give you another one. Moses and Pharaoh. Not to every good Israelite, Moses was their hero. He was the most humble man of his time. He talked with God face to face like nobody else. I mean, Moses was the ideal. And who was the worst of the worst of the worst? Pharaoh. 
And basically in chapter 9, he says, okay, what's the difference between Moses and Pharaoh? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Do you know when God taught that to Moses? That's a whole cleft of the rock, right? He sticks him in the cleft of the rock and he says, I'm going to let my glory pass by. And you only see the backside of it. And he says to him, it's all about what I have done. You realize what he's telling every Israelite? Moses is a product of the sovereign mercy of God. If God did not act in that sovereign mercy in Moses' life, Moses and Pharaoh could have switched places. Do you think it's by accident that Moses actually was brought up in Pharaoh's household? This is all God's doing. Hodge says it well. Pharaoh was no worse than many other men who have obtained mercy. Yet God, for wise and benevolent reasons, withheld from him the saving influences of his grace and gave him up to his own wicked heart so that he became more and more hardened until he was finally destroyed. It's funny because Paul asks the question, is this this unjust? And he doesn't really give an explanation why it's unjust. It doesn't go into a philosophical argument. He just says that's what God did. And God is the standard of what is just. So if he does it, it can't, can't be unjust. So then there's another question in Romans 9 that is asked. You will say to me, how does he still find fault with me? If it is God's sovereign election, how can he find fault with me? And again, in typical Pauline fashion, that's a great question. Who are you to talk back to God? You see, it would have been a great time for Paul to say, oh, wait a minute, whoa, 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 God's not really sovereign. He just gives everybody an opportunity, and the ones that want to come based on their own free will will come. He doesn't do that. This is, election is, is not arrogance, it's not pride, it's, it's actually very humbling. For you to say you could have been the worst person in the world, And you are not that person only because God has given you sovereign love. You get that. That's not arrogance. He didn't choose you because you were good. His choosing you actually keeps you from being as bad as you would have been. Humbling. So how do I take away this? Like, I struggled with the application because, you know what, I have been trying to apply God's sovereign election for 30 years, and I don't have it figured out yet. But I do think a couple things are just big picture to get you going in the right direction. Number one, you have to embrace God's sovereign mercy for yourself. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you hunger and thirst to know God? Are you turning from your sin and learning to submit to God in holiness? If those are true... That is only true because God has worked in your heart sovereignly. You have to accept that. Anything else is to put yourself in the place of, I'm saving myself. It is in Christ alone. And this ought to make you thankful. I know that every one of you 
is not as good or as holy or as faithful as you want to be. I know you're still struggling with that. But you should still be thankful that God has come to you and given you the beginnings of faith and then he has promised that he will not uh, fail to complete what he has begun. You should be thankful. I struggle every day saying, Lord, why am I not as good as I want to be? But I should step back and say, Lord, you have plucked me out of the depth of sin. Thank you. Secondly, this may be the hardest, this may be the most clear one for the story with Rebecca. Every child of God is called to submit to God's sovereign mercy when it comes to those you love. You have to accept that God is good, even if he does not save the ones we dearly want him to save. We do not have a statement that our kids or our loved ones are elect or not elect. So like I say, you are supposed to keep trusting in God uh, for their salvation to the end. That's, that's fine. But it is also true. Many of you have already lost loved ones who have died in unbelief. And I want you to understand that God wanted you to have those precious bonds of affection, even with those who are lost. You see, because something in us actually feeling this rejection of the truth, that we, we don't want it to happen, and their bonds of affection that we have, that grief and that anxiousness and that, that misery that Paul felt, and that we feel at times, God says that that is what he does feel. Danny, thank you for saying that God is not impassionate. When he says that he hated Esau, you don't for a moment believe that it grieved his heart when Esau rejected his birthright later on. But in the end, you do not control the salvation of those you love. And don't throw it off on just their free will. Wrestle with God why he actually does choose, because that's ultimately it. I said to someone recently, you know, I'm so thankful that my children at least now are expressing love and faith in God. And they said, well, you did something right. Well, maybe I did do a few things right. That's not why they're believing in Jesus. Did a lot of things wrong. Thirdly, plead. Plead with God. For the salvation of those you love. We are not called to be indifferent. We are never called to be passive. We are told that God takes our passions and our desires and he responds to those. And this is why I said earlier that God saves people through prayer. I know Ann Hope started prayers for the next generation. I hope that never ends in this church. Many of you have been praying passionately for those that you love. Good. Keep going. <clears throat> the doctrine of election is not easily embraced. We will see in the coming weeks that Isaac will resist it his whole life. You get that? 
If you're fighting against election, if you don't quite like it, I get it. I resisted the doctrine for years, and then finally I accepted it, and then I have been wrestling the rest of my life to embrace God's absolute sovereignty over the salvation of people. You're not a good Sunday school teacher if you don't put your heart into the redemption of those kids. And then one day you'll watch those very kids, some of them, walk away from the faith. That doesn't grieve your heart. You haven't done what you should be doing. You're not reflecting God's heart. You shouldn't just preach Sunday school. Well, if they believe, they believe. If they don't, they don't. Who cares? If God taught the truth of election by bringing two peoples from one womb, it seems obvious to me that he is okay with his people wrestling hard and grieving long over its reality in their particular life. But in the end, after you consider every other factor, salvation is under God's control, not man's. That's it. As Sandy would say, you think about that. Amen. to number 469. Number 469, I'll do the same. Before we uh, sing it, there's the second verse um, always hits me kind of hard. It says, while all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, Each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? Let's rise together and sing. How sweet and awesome is the place with Christ within the door. While everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores, while all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the of us cries with thankful tongue Lord why was I a guest why was I made to hear your voice and choice and rather star 
same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in whilst we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. Pity the nations, O our God, constrain the earth to come. Send Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. That means the one who started the work, may he finish it. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen.